This is Gray Fox from the Halls of Defcon, and you are listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 337 for August 14th, 2023. And I am freshly back from Hacker Summer Camp. I went out to Las Vegas, Nevada for about eight days. The first few days of which actually were just a family vacation. My two daughters and I went out there. They're both now 21. So we uh, decided to do a family vacay out in Sin City, and it was quite a good time. We went and saw some great shows. If you go, I can highly recommend basically almost any of the Cirque du Soleil shows. We saw O and uh, the Beatles Love. We're big Beatles fans. And Piff the Magic Dragon. Not Puff, Piff. Uh, He was, I don't know if he was a winner, but he was on one of the many reality talent shows and and, uh, ended up with his own gig out in Vegas, and it was quite funny. Anyway, we've got a kind of a weird news show for you today. This is not going to be a typical show in most uh, in most ways. Uh, I do have a few news articles for you because this would normally be a news show. And I'm going to read a few things that actually came out of Hacker Summer Camp that were presented or released or announced uh, as part of one of the three conferences that make up Hacker Summer Camp. Before I do, I've got a couple quick notes. Uh, for, <laughs> this has been a weird week for name checks. I was name checked twice in the last week. One of them was in a Wikipedia article of all places, and I would never have seen this. But somebody I know did run across this and say, hey, your, <laughs> your name, you were name checked in this article on Calyx OS, which is an Android, an alternative Android operating system that you can install if you don't want the standard stock Google Android operating system, you know, because privacy. It, and there's a little line in that article about my book. I mean, I can read it. It's really short. It just says, in 2023, Calyx OS was one of the alternative phone operating systems mentioned by Carrie Parker in the book Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, that's basically it. <laughs> but there we have it, folks. My name is now on Wikipedia. I am now famous. But that wasn't all. Uh, as I was getting ready to fly back from Las Vegas, I was sitting on the tarmac in my seat, getting ready to taxi out to the runway. And I was already like half asleep. I, I was getting ready to try to doze off on the long flight back across the U.S. As I'm sitting there catching up on some podcasts that I'd miss, I was listening to Security Now, and I'd gotten almost all the way through it. I was almost half asleep. And then out of nowhere, Steve Gibson, who's the the main guy on the show, was talking about global privacy control and GPC, which is kind of like the do not track flag. And I had written an article about this last year. And all of a sudden he says, and I found this great article from Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And he chuckles like that's a weird name, which it is. And then proceeds to read the entire article. So anyway, if you're curious, I've got a link to Steve reading the article uh, on YouTube. It'll jump you right to that point because their podcasts are pretty long. Uh, If you just want to hear the article read to you by somebody, not me. All right. So again, this is going to be a kind of a different kind of a new show. I'm going to basically bring you highlights from my trip to Hacker Summer Camp. Uh, I've got a few stories that actually broke last week in Las Vegas that I'm going to read to you like I would normally read news stories. Uh, And I've also got two interviews that I picked up while I was there. I was hoping to do more. And I'm learning every year that I go that I I really need to schedule these things. I can't really do these things on the fly. So uh, I did manage to get a couple interviews, which I scheduled ahead of time. One with the guys from the Hackasat team, one of which I interviewed a couple of years ago, and one I just interviewed, uh, who were there running the CTF tournament, the Capture the Flag hacking tournament, on the live orbiting satellite, like 
in space. So that was really interesting. So I talked to those guys while I was there. And also I had been talking with a guy named Nichols and he wrote a book about fishing and protecting yourself from fishing. And, and he was going to be at DEF CON. This was his first trip to DEF CON. So I said, hey, let's get together. And while I was there with him, I captured a little snippet with him as well. So there's the introduction. Let's get to my little tale of Hacker Summer Camp 2023. So let me kind of walk you through Hacker Summer Camp. Every year in early August, these three hacker conferences, InfoSec security conferences, whatever you want to call them, they happen in succession. Actually, they all overlap a little bit. Um, and this year was no exception. That starts off with B-sides. Uh, and those B-sides are actually around the country. It was kind of a spinoff from DEF CON and Black Hat that's meant to be a smaller thing. It's actually kind of meant to be like a starter thing. If you want to present at one of these big conferences, but you can't get on the stage, uh, because, you know, that's it, it's a pretty high bar and there's a lot of applicants, then you should check out one of these B-sides ones. And they're all over the country. The first one I went to was here in Raleigh in North Carolina, um, but I'd never been to the one in Las Vegas. So anyway, that was like Tuesday and Wednesday. And these are the main days. Some of these things spill into other days with other things. But like the primary days for these were Tuesday and Wednesday. Last week was B-Sides Las Vegas. That was at the Tuscany Hotel. Uh, and then Wednesday, Thursday was Black Hat. And that was at Mandalay Bay. And then Thursday through Sunday, uh, though Friday and Saturday were the main days, was DEF CON 31. And that was in Caesars Forum. And Caesars Forum, if you kind of know the Vegas Strip, is right between Harrah's, Link, and the Flamingo Hotels. So I didn't go to Black Hat because that costs a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, last year, there was some sort of a deal with DEF CON where if you bought a DEF CON pass, you could get like a floor or an expo pass for Black Hat, which I did do last year. Uh, but that was not happening this year, so I was not going to pay for that. So I did not go to Black Hat this year. Black Hat is much more corporate and much more like a regular tech conference if you've ever been to one. Uh, and honestly, I don't dig it that much. It's kind of nice to go on the expo floor and see what they're giving out. Plus, they tend to have some really nice liquor. <laughs> that they give you uh, for free walking around the expo floor. But I didn't get, I did not get to go to that this year, nor did I go to the Black Hat party this year. But B-sides at DEF CON were plenty. So uh, by the way, before I went, uh, last year I took like a hacker laptop. I had a Windows slash Kali Linux laptop that I took with me for the last two DEF CONs, um, which was fine and it was nice, but I decided, you know what, screw it. This year I'm gonna actually take my regular MacBook and I put my MacBook and my iPhone into lockdown mode for this. Not that I probably really needed to, but I wanted to try that so I could report it back to you. And honestly, it was easy peasy. I barely noticed that it was there at all. So uh, you could do this if you want to yourself, you know, though I seriously doubt that any of you really need to do this. But if you were in some environment where you were worried about the security of your device, uh, or, you know, if you're a dissident or a journalist or famous and rich in some way or a politician, just go to settings and security and scroll all the way down. You'll see an option there for lockdown mode. Turn it on. You'll have to restart your device and then ta-da, you're done. That's all there is to it. I really saw no real issues with it whatsoever. So I was very happy with that. I will probably keep doing that in the future. All right. So first, let's talk about B-sides. Um, I went in Tuesday morning to see the keynote from Josh Corman because this is the 10-year anniversary of I'm the Cavalry. And so it was kind of an update on what, you know, what's going on and where they're going. And honestly, the truth is Josh doesn't know. He's actually kind of sounds like he's taking a three month sabbatical uh, from work to kind of figure out what's next for I'm the Cavalry. And they actually had a whole track dedicated to I'm the Cavalry at B-Sides, which was great. Um, it was very emotional keynote. Uh, Josh has some really deep stories to tell, some real uh, ones that pull your heartstrings. 
And so anyway, it was it was a very good keynote. I'm glad I ducked in there long enough to see that. And then I had some other stuff to do, so I couldn't really go back until Wednesday afternoon. I did do that. I saw some other great talks. I saw Jen Easterly give a talk. She is the current head of CISA. She was great. Uh, I really, really like Jen Easterly. I would love to meet her. I'd love to interview her. Uh, but I was very close to her anyway at the B-side thing. It was a nice, intimate venue. And she seemed like a very down-to-earth, very, very sharp person. Uh, obviously knows her stuff, and I think she's a great uh, person for that job. And then eventually that night, there was the pool party for B-Sides. They, they, uh, often these conferences have a big party to celebrate the end of the show. So they had a pool party at the Tuscany, which was a lot of fun. So there was an open bar, which was always nice. The drinks were kind of weak, but you know, can't beat free, so you just get more of them. I saw Josh Corman there, and I had a chance to talk to him for a little bit. I uh, spent a lot of time actually talking with Alan Friedman. It was just a riot. He was wearing a gold sequined jacket and no shirt. I could not pull that off, but he pulled it off. <laughs> he pulled it off nicely. Uh, we talked for a while. His voice was about shot, but it, especially with all the music, he had to yell over it. We, we chatted for a while there too, but honestly, mostly at the pool party, I hung out with Gray Fox, uh, who you heard introduced today's podcast. He's one of my patrons. I met him last year. And honestly, at this point, we're just friends. So it was great to hang out with him and spend some time with him. And it was the pool party was a lot of fun. I think I went home about one in the morning, which <laughs> is pretty typical for this week. Hacker Summer Camp is a 24-7 affair, if you're doing it right. And I still managed to probably get seven or eight hours of sleep because I was trying really hard to make sure I did. But nevertheless, it's basically you get up and you do it all day and then you go to sleep and then you just get up the next day and do it again. So that was B-Sides. And like I said, I did not go to Black Hat. So on Thursday uh, was DEF CON and I went in to get my badge that morning. Uh, normally there's what they call line con because prior to COVID, the only way to get your ticket at DEF CON was to show up, get in line, put cash on the barrel head, and then they give you your, your badge because uh, they didn't want to know any information about you. So there's no credit cards. Now, after COVID, when it, things went virtual, that had to change. And a lot of people liked the fact that there was a online option and they charge you a little bit more to do that. Uh, but you can buy your badge ahead of time on a credit card instead of having to do it on a uh, uh, day of with cash. Now, you still have to wait to pick, get your badge. You still have to go through registration. But if pre-registered, it was the line was definitely shorter. But I mean, like it, the registration, I think, officially opened at 7 or 8 a.m. on Thursday morning. But people had already started to line up at 5 p.m. the prior day. This is a thing. Like people camp out. Like I remember doing this for bands. Like I think we camped out all night to get Genesis tickets when I was in college when they were doing a tour. It's it's like that kind of atmosphere. People camp out overnight and just plan to it. They order pizza and bring it in or someone goes and brings pizza back to the line because you got a bunch of your friends and your line. Line con is a big thing. I, however, am not into doing that. So I skipped the whole thing and I got a special press badge with DEF CON as well. So I did not have to go through all that. And honestly, I, I prefer it that way. Now, I heard from the, the press folks after the fact that they think there's about 24,000 people there this year. Honestly, it really felt like there was a lot more. I, I mean, that was about the same as it was last year, but it, it really felt more crowded. I'm not sure why. Uh, and maybe those figures are preliminary. And maybe they'll change. I think their peak pr just prior to COVID was 30,000. And I'm getting this from Wikipedia, so I'm not sure how good these numbers are. But it really felt like there was a lot more people here this year than last year, even though Wikipedia doesn't seem to think so. So I also had to skip the merch line this year because it was just ridiculous. I mean, it was bad last year too, but I mean, this line was absolutely enormous. It would literally take you hours to get through it. I mean, two to three hours for sure to get through that line, unless you got there super early, which of course now you're just waiting, you know, beforehand. 
So unfortunately, I didn't get anything. I didn't get any merch this year, which is kind of a drag. I mean, I've got a couple of nice shirts that I've gotten in previous years because I did wait it out. Honestly, I wish there was some way that we could buy that stuff online after the fact or something. It's it's a real bummer that, I mean, I wanted to get something. I wanted to get a t-shirt from this year and I just couldn't. It was, I just didn't have that time to wait. Plus you're standing that whole time. It is, it's not fun. It's, it's kind of brutal. So I, I wish they could find some better way to do that. I'm not sure what it would be. But by the time that line got short, which was like Saturday, the reason it was short is because all the merch was gone. You know, they, they were had just barely a few things left, like small t-shirts and then 5X and 6X t-shirts. That was it. So anyway, on that Thursday, again, which is kind of like the registration day, there's not a whole lot going on. But Gray Fox knew about this pool party that was, I think, hosted by Jack Reisider. I'm, I'm going to get that name wrong, who is the podcast host for Dark Knight Diaries. And so I got a chance to meet Jack. That was kind of fun. He was actually handing out comic books. I haven't read I haven't read it yet, but it was a Darknet Diaries comic book. That was kind of cool. He was signing them at the show, though I didn't get mine signed. I forgot to do that when I was talking to him. But I did talk to him about maybe coming on the show, and he, he seemed amenable to that idea. So maybe we'll get Jack on the show, and uh, he could talk about his podcast when he's here. But the real fun thing for me on Thursday was the Root Party. That's R00T. Uh, they're another classic hacker group that goes way back, kind of like the Cult of the Dead Cow and Loft. And there's a lot of overlap between these groups, by the way. And so Luke and Misha, who I just interviewed last week, invited me to this party. I was very happy that they did so. But there were probably, by the time it was over, there's probably 50 people there. We took a big picture on a staircase all together. And, you know, I met a lot of people. Joe Men was there, who is the author of the Cult of the Dead Cow book. He works for the Washington Post. Got the chance to talk to him for a little bit. We talked about the sad state of American journalism, about how there's so few journalist jobs and all the local newspapers are getting bought up, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we talked a little bit about that. I met some other folks from the Cult of the Dead Cow. And while I was there, Luke gave me some really cool Cult of the Dead Cow swag. I got a, a really cool keychain with a really neat logo on it. And I got one of their uh, challenge coins for the commemorating the 25th anniversary of Back Orifice which was a, a Microsoft hack that made a lot of waves back in the late 90s. Uh, it was written by Sardistic, uh, who I did meet at one of these parties. And the coin itself, um, <laughs> they, they lovingly call it a butt coin as opposed to a Bitcoin. So this challenge coin has the back orifice logo, which you uh, need to see to understand what I'm saying. So that, <laughs> there's a link in the show notes if you're curious. But it was a great party. I was so, so happy they invited me. Everybody was so welcoming. All the people there were very, very friendly. I was just so happy to be included in this little group because I, I I mean, I was definitely a third wheel here. I was just so happy to be uh, have the chance to hang around with these folks. It was a really, really humbling experience, but it, it was it was also just a ton of fun. So that was a great party. That was Thursday night. All right, so now we're on Friday, which is the first real day of DEF CON as far as I'm concerned. That's when the the real talks and things get started. Uh, and I kicked off the day by going to the announcement of a brand new, secure, uh, privacy-focused, decentralized communication platform created by the Cult of the Dead Cow, in particular Dildog and Medusa. I guess are, they were the, at least the two that presented it, so I, I, I know the Dildog wrote a lot of it, and uh, I think Medusa had a lot to do with it as well. And it's, it's called Veilid, V-E-I-L-I-D which is short for Valid and Veiled Identification. Let me just read briefly from the Valid.com website, which describes what it is. Valid allows anyone to build a distributed private app 
Valid gives users the privacy to opt out of data collection and online tracking. Valid is being built with user experience, privacy, and safety as our top priorities. It is open source and available to everyone to use and build upon. Valid goes above and beyond existing privacy technologies and has the potential to completely change the way people use the internet. Valid has no profit motive, which puts us in a unique position to promote ideals without the compromise of capitalism. But we built Valid because when the internet was young and new, we viewed it as an endless and open realm of possibility. Instead, the internet we know now has been heavily commercialized, with users and their data being the most sought-after commodity. The only way to opt out of becoming the product for billionaires to exploit are either too technical for the average user or to simply not go online. We don't believe that is fair. We still haven't given up on our dream for the entire internet to be free and accessible without trading privacy to use it. We believe that everyone should be able to forge relationships, learn, create, and build online without being monetized. With Valid, the user is in control in a way that is approachable and friendly regardless of technical ability. We want to give the world the internet we should have had all along. So obviously, I do not argue with any of that sentiment. These are lofty and noble goals, and I wish them the best of luck. The announcement was very interesting to watch. It was great to be there. They gave a very high-level view of what's involved. I think at one point, maybe, Dildog said it was something like if Tor and IPFS, which is the interplanetary file system, had a baby. So I actually spoke very briefly with Dildog about this and floated the idea of him coming on the show to talk about it. He seemed a little distracted at the time. I'm sure he was very busy, uh, so I'm not sure how much that actually sunk in, but I'm hoping to uh, to talk to him about it at some point, and, and perhaps Medusa as well. Uh, I'd love to bring them on the show and have them talk about Valid. In the meantime, the code, as they said, is open. I've already downloaded it myself. I haven't had too much of a chance to poke around yet, but it's got some Python integrations, which I'm looking at because that would be a lot of fun. Uh, In fact, there's already a demo Python app, so uh, maybe I'll build on that. And you can build your own server, by the way, which I might do as well. I might host a server as a droplet or something out on uh, as a VPS out on the Internet. But the way these things work is actually using cell phones, Uh, using our cell phones mainly. It doesn't have to be cell phones, but it uses all our vast network of always connected cell phones, which are supercomputers in our pockets, and some of the same kind of Tor onion ideas for for wrapping these messages to have this huge, private, decentralized mesh network for communicating with others. It it looks really cool. I can't wait to dig into it and see what the what the details are like. So after I went to the Valid thing, I stopped by the uh, Voting Village. I think it used to be called Voting Hacking Village. Uh, run by Harry Hursty, who I've interviewed. Uh, he was here, I think, last year. We talked about election security. Maybe it was the year. No, I think it was last year. So I had a chance to briefly talk with Hari. I also got to meet Matt Blaze, who opened the Voting Village uh, with a short talk, which was very good. I've been wanting to interview him for a long time as well. I tried to follow up with him, but I could not could not corner him by himself. He was a very busy person. But then there was a panel discussion uh, that was led by Chris Krebs, who was a former head of CISA under the Trump administration, who famously said that the election was not rigged and basically got fired for it. Uh, I've always wanted to meet him. So I had a chance to meet him at this panel. He was like six feet from me because I was in the front row watching this panel. Uh, And then at one point they asked for questions. I raised my hand. I asked a question and Chris Krebs handed me the mic. So I didn't really directly meet him, but, you know, I was like standing like right next to the guy for like a few minutes. So anyway, I got to meet Chris Krebs. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sounding like a fanboy here. I got to meet so many people that I've admired and people that I really would love to interview on the show. Uh, But it was really great to see these people in person. 
And then throughout the day, I kind of went to a couple of the talks. I went to the Hackasat booth. I went to the Hackasat contest, uh, which I've got a clip from those guys uh, at the end of the show because uh, they were running their Hackasat contest live there at the show. I saw Jeff Moss briefly. He was walking by and I said hi to him. He stopped and, you know, kind of said hello. And I asked him how things were going. And he basically said really busy. <laughs> so, and I let him go. So I did get a chance to see Jeff. I, I don't honestly at this point, I don't even know if he recognized me because he meets so many people. All right. So I did get two interviews while I was there. First, I talked with Nick Oles. Uh, I was actually introduced to him through my publisher. And it turns out we were both going to DEF CON. So we got together while we were there. And I took him off on off to one side in the middle of the conference and got this little clip. All right. Well, as promised, I'm doing some live stuff at DEF CON. This is uh, day one on Thursday. And I am sitting here with Nick Oles, who is actually going to be on the podcast coming up soon. We're working out the details right now. But he has wrote a book. What's the name of your book, Nick? How to Catch a Fish. This is my first book. Um, it's a, a practical guide to detecting phishing emails for end users, network defenders, and computer enthusiasts. Well, I've got a copy of the book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm trying to read it before we do our interview. We'll see if I can at least skim through it. So uh, this is your first DEF CON, too. What do you think so far? It's an awesome experience. Uh, I've wanted to come for many, many years. This is the first time I've actually had the opportunity to show up. Um, really, really great people walking, watching, really good talks really, really welcoming and fun environment that we're at today. All right. So we are going to be talking about phishing emails and how to recognize phishing and what to do if perhaps you click on the wrong link, I guess. So uh, walk us through like, I don't know, maybe not chapter by chapter, but give us a little preview of the kind of things that are in, in your book and the things that we're likely to talk about. Yeah. So uh, exactly kind of what you said. So it's when you get an email uh, that looks to be suspicious, my book will help explain different processes to take uh, section by section of the email, starting with like the greeting, uh, the content of the email, um, and then some more technical things like analyzing the links, uh, looking at header information and, and trying to look at that all collectively to determine, you know, whether this phishing email is actually malicious or benign, whether it's good or bad for the end users. And we try and make it pretty easy that someone with a highly technical background can pick it up and benefit from it, but also with no technical background. So, you know, some of our people that didn't grow up with computers or, or kind of started later in the, in the game can also benefit from this as well. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to it, Nick. We'll do that sometime in the next couple months, probably. Sounds good. Thanks, Kerry. So I'm very much looking forward to reading Nick's book and uh, having him on the show. Hopefully we'll get that done here in the next uh, couple months. So after the main day, of course, there were the parties, and uh, I went to a couple. At one of these parties, I met Joe Gray, who was actually also introduced to me by Gray Fox, and he has written a book called Practical Social Engineering. He was actually at the CDC party, uh, the second CDC party, the public one, the one that was actually part of DEF CON, not the root party, actually. This was the CDC party, and they were doing this for the Valid launch. So they, were, they brought a bunch of people back together, and they had a big party for that on Friday night. And at this party, I met Joe, and, and we talked a little bit, and we exchanged our information. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I might be getting him on the show for an interview as well. And then the CDC party was just—it was just a lot of fun. I, at that point, I met one of the founders, Grandmaster Rat. He was—he was a trip. Uh, he was in full regalia. He had his sunglasses on, his cowboy hat, his cow chaps. Uh, he was even wrapping up on stage at one point. It was—it was quite the party. I met a few other CDC members while, while I was there, including Sardistic and some others. I bumped into a friend of mine uh, named Ladrina, who was actually part of our EFF Tech Trivia winning team last year. And it turns out she is now uh, a member of the Cult of the Dead Cow. At that party, she was officially inducted. I was really glad to be there for that. That was really cool to see. 
So that night, I also dropped in on GothCon, which was a great party. I saw at least one of my friends there from the DC 919 group. I checked out a couple of the other parties. Uh, there are lots of parties at DEF CON, official ones and unofficial ones. So now we're finally at Saturday, which was the last real official day. There was some stuff on Sunday. I actually didn't hang around for this year. I'll tell you about that in a second. But during the day, really the main thing I did was I got a really nice interview with the folks on the Hackassette team. So let me play that for you now. All right, guys, I'm here with the Hackassette folks. We've talked to Aaron and Jason before. But what, the Hackassette 2, I think, is when you and I talked. So it's been a while. So first of all, how did the satellite launch go? Were there, were there any hiccups with that? Yeah, so we launched way back in June now. You know, it feels so long ago. There was a little bit of delays. I think we got pushed by a couple of days, but ultimately made it up there. Um, and then we deployed from the ISS on July 6th. And then we went into a period of uh, checkout for our vehicle. So that involves characterizing the vehicle to, you know, to tune the, our guidance navigation control algorithms, make sure all the subsystems checked out. And the interesting thing about space operations is every vehicle tends to be unique in its own certain way. So you have to find out what those uniquenesses are for each vehicle and build that into your conop. So we had a, a couple of things with this vehicle that were interesting. So we had uh, a reaction wheel that was performing out of family. So we had to, you know, adapt and build in a, a way to overcome that. So that was an interesting thing that we had to handle. Well, you had a little bit of a Voyager 2 moment, right? When the thing, when you went to go talk to the thing and it wasn't where you thought it was going to be, what happened there? Yeah, so uh, it, it was interesting. When we uh, got the initial state vector, it was we, we think it was before an ISS, the ISS did a, a burn to change its orbit. So by, by the time it, we were deployed, our state vector ended up being off by thousands of kilometers. So our first pass, we actually didn't, didn't, hit, didn't get comms on our first pass. And then we had to go back and look. And we saw where the ISS was, and this was about three hours after we were deployed. And uh, based on the the, the two-line element that we generated and the state vector, it had us off by a thousand kilometers of the ISS. And three hours later, that wasn't really possible. So we went and kind of redid the math and pointed in the right spot and got it on second contact. All right, so what were some of the top goals or flags for the CTF? And how many of the flags have been captured so far? So, so far, um, 60,000 points have been captured, or I think that's right, yeah, 60,000. And I be believe about two-thirds of the challenges have been solved at this point. Uh, we're still waiting, actually, on downlinking some of the data that happened overnight. Uh, and that's going to happen in the next pass, which is going to occur in about three and a half hours. And then we'll be able to score some of those challenges. We're probably going to be up pretty late with a few more passes, downlinking some more data, so that really the team scoring won't occur until we've gotten all the data down from the satellite. So our last pass, we weren't able to get everything that we needed, so we're still scoring it, and that's kind of one of the challenges of running a, you know, this type of competition. So talk to me about that. You just keep selling passes, and, and so I want the audience to understand that you've got this thing flying overhead. It's not geosynchronous, right? So it's not staying overhead. So it is moving relative to us, and it's going kind of a weird pattern around the globe, and I know you've got different uh, uplink or downlink stations, whatever the hell you call them. So like, what is that window like? What are These guys that are doing the CTF, like, when can they talk to this thing? How do they squirt, squirt their data to the thing or whatever you guys say? Sure, yeah, so the, the teams really don't talk to the satellite directly. They talk to our infrastructure, and then we, as a mission you know, planner, we basically package up their submission, and then when we get one of those contact windows, we link up with the satellite, and we send up that data, and we downlink our telemetry data. And depending on the duration of the pass, 
This has to do with the orbital mechanics and the locations of the ground stations. Those passes can only be a few minutes, up to maybe 10 minutes in duration. And so we may not necessarily have all the time we need to get all the data down from the vehicle. And this is just something that we have to deal with and the teams have to deal with. All right, so I got, I got to know, what's it like to run a CTF, a capture the flag tournament on an orbiting satellite? Uh, so it's it's interesting from my perspective, trying to, first of all, we had to build the system that would be able to host it, and then to try to build in enough redundancy and uh, opportunities for people to do stuff. So early on when we're like looking at the orbits and, and ground sites, you know, picking ground stations to do this, and you basically get locked into those choices and ultimately have to have to deal with it at that point. So for for this activity, we had four ground sites, Chile, uh, South Africa, Western Australia, and New Zealand that were a part of this. And not every ground site is the same. So some ground sites we've noticed, there's a lot more radio frequency interference than other ones. And some of our ground sites, we have better coverage over it just based on the orbit so we're 52 degree orbit so you know some of those lower lower ground sites are we, we hit them a lot more often so it it is challenging trying to trying to do all that and trying to keep everything working and available for for an activity like this yeah one thing that being a previous organizer for defcon ctf we always tried to build out as much infrastructure to understand what's happening in the game. And we had the advantage that we were the ones hosting that and we were connected to that system. In the case of the satellite, we're connecting to this system for minutes at a time, you know, able to downlink maybe a couple megabytes of data at most uh, and uplink that. And so our ability to look at the system and the operation of the system and what, what's happening is very limited. So, we know something's happening, and that's kind of been one of our model, our mottos lately is something's happening, but we, we don't really know exactly what's going on with the satellite. It may take a couple more passes for us to get all that data, for us to analyze all that telemetry data and kind of reconstruct what's going on in the satellite, because we, we don't have SSH on this thing. We're not, we're not sitting there on a terminal looking at what the satellite, looking at the processes that are running, that sort of thing. We're getting telemetry from it, we're getting state of health from the vehicle, we're getting all sorts of things, but we're kind of piecemealing together what exactly is going on. Because during these outages between contact windows, that's when the teams are executing their mission plans and their commands and their scripts and things like that are running on the vehicle. And we don't have the ability to instrument that 100% and bring down all that data from the vehicle and know exactly what's happening down to what every single instruction that is executing on that satellite. We just can't do that. And so this is a wildly different scenario than I'm used to, than I, I think any CTF organizer would be used to, to deal with. And, and I like caution people, it is, it is completely different. Like, like, like just the powerless feeling sometimes of the organizer of, yeah, it's a satellite, it's in space, we can't get to it, we, you know, we don't know if, if, if maybe it's gonna break during that pass or what's gonna happen. You know, when that first contact like links up, you know, we're just like, is it gonna respond? Is the bird gonna link up? Are we gonna get what we're looking for? You know, all those things. So there's a little bit of moment, there's a little bit of like hold your breath kind of scenarios. Uh, and then, you know, we get that telemetry down and then there's kind of like a scramble for us to just eat up that telemetry as fast as we can, kind of like look in piecemeal and maybe try to figure out what happened in that last, you know, outage. And it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I will say it's a, a lot different than what I'm used to. Every contact is a very stressful time for all of us up here. <laughs> I'm picturing you guys like all the people in JPL, like when they first get contact from the, like, the Mars rover or whatever, and everybody erupts and jumping up and down, right? 
That's about what we did yesterday yeah. when we got that first one off. We were, yes! <laughs> I, I think it's funny because we'll, we'll huddle around, you know, because there's really like two people operating during the contact, uh, maybe three. And, and it's like everybody's just kind of like holding their breath, you know, and it's, it, and it's like these guys don't make a mistake, right? Like, you know, don't click a button wrong, you know, don't do anything like because it's a very precious time slot that we have. You need to think about this game. It's over, what, 48 hours. And the total time that we actually are talking with the satellite is on the order of maybe less than an hour, right, during that time. So, you know, kudos to the team and everything that they're doing. You know, it's a stressful situation to be in. There's not a lot of ability for us to react with the limited contacts we have. So we kind of just got to go with what we have, you know, and kind of piecemeal it together. But I think I, what we're feeling is kind of what the teams are feeling, right? They're feeling that same thing. They're waiting for that telemetry data, the excitement. What just happened? What happened to the data? What happened to the things that I did to the satellite? And what we see, I think everybody's been enjoying it thus far, you know, but it's definitely a much more challenging environment than a typical CTF. All right, so look, looking at what you've done so far, and I realize you guys aren't done yet. You're like, what, a few hours out, I think, from being done, so close. You know, what have you learned so far, either about what it's like to hack a satellite in motion or how to run a CTF like this? What have you, what have you learned so far, if anything? Uh, Oh man! <laughs> wow. Um, what haven't we learned? I, I think we could probably, you know, we can build on this. I think you know the things that I learned is this is the first time somebody's ever done anything like this, and and when I say this was a Herculean undertaking to do, I, I'm not lying. A lot of people put in a lot of hard work. The the hours that this team worked over the last three or four weeks, you know, like. We were looking at it from a perspective of we've got to go out to DEF CON, we've got to have a working satellite, the risk of that. We've got to have a working system, you know, all the challenges, the infrastructure, everything. And we've got to do it with 30 contacts, right? Like it wasn't like we were in the like, you know, there's a weekend every weekend philosophy. No, it's not like it's not like that. There's there's orbital dynamics says there's 30 more contacts you have with the vehicle to get it right. You know, and so looking back. Building a game like this under the time pressure and bringing it out to a competition, I, I don't know if I would recommend somebody to do that. You know, that might be a lesson learned, you know, but it's also what we were trying to get to in Hackasat is build up that knowledge. Now, as far as what maybe the teams learn or the cybersecurity uh, community has learned, I think is space is hard, right? I think that's what we're learning is, is it's truly the environment is different. It isn't like you're hooking up to your computer. It isn't like you're JTAGging is something. Like when you when you look at these environments, the limited amount of bandwidth, the limited amount of contact you have, the limited amount of knowledge you have, that is important from a security perspective. Like how do you secure a system with that kind of knowledge, right? I can't go and pull the hard drive and forensically analyze it and tell you, tell somebody, yeah, that malware is still on your system, right? That malware is still on your satellite. How do you know it's still on your satellite with that contact, with that information, right? I feel like that's a fundamental problem maybe that we are abstractly discovering and we kind of knew about, but it's real right now. You know, it truly is real for our team. One of the things that happened during the game that I, I found was interesting and we'll have to look at later is one of, one of the teams that looked like they were hitting our flight processor <laughs> pretty hard, so we kind of had to tell them, hey, you, you realize this is only oh, a, a 100, 100 megahertz processor here. <laughs> this isn't your quad-cored, uh, water-cooled uh, system, so be gentle. <laughs> All right, so where do we go from here? Like, uh, is there going to be a Hackasat 5? Do you even know at this point what, what what's going to be next year? I would like to have a Hackasat 5. I don't, I mean, it's, right now, I mean, we're, we're in that 
I guess moment where it's you know we're we're all stressed and we we do need a break. So, but I'm not in the decision authority for that. So we'll see what happens. I think. Yeah, I would live to see you know this continue on, whether it's continued on by you know U.S. Space Force uh, and and AFRL. You know they've been great partners in this. They led the charge. You know put money on the line and put the government you know in this position where you know they were lofty goals. You know and and trusted in the team to do this and the team you know what we've accomplished has been amazing but maybe this is something that needs to grow into the commercial sector and needs to become participation from the aerospace communities right not just this was always meant to be a seedling this was always meant to be a start of something and so what i would love to see is that start just doesn't end right it doesn't end here it, and it doesn't have to be the United States government that's the sponsor of it. It's these aerospace communities can open up, like you know SpaceX and others, you know, Boeing's and Lockheed's and uh, every everybody, because commercial space is real. It's happening. It's right happening right in front of us. You know, the economics of getting vehicles in space, economics of that has changed entirely. You know, with with the launch market. So I think the next step is. Bring it, bring it to DEF CON. Other people be responsible, make a Hackasat, make five Hackasats, you know, and, and open up your hardware and open up kind of that knowledge base to the community. There's a lot of potential in the cybersecurity community. There's a lot of people that want to help and they're really smart, they're really motivated, and as you can see, they work really hard, right? Like they, they do not sleep, right, until they've accomplished their objective. Uh, and I, that's what I think is maybe the next step, so. All right, guys, that was great. Thanks for giving me the update, and good luck finishing this thing off. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, and I'm looking forward to uh, working with you in the future. Thank you. That was great to catch up with those guys and to see this thing come to fruition. I don't know what they're going to do next year, but uh, if they do another Hackasat, I'm sure I'll be talking to them again next summer. All right, so Saturday night, last night at the show, of course, I went to the EFF Tech Trivia. I hung out with Corey Doctorow for a little bit. Uh, and he actually helped me on a couple of answers. The, my team that we won with last year was all spread out this year. We couldn't get together for Tech Trivia this year. We won the Tech Trivia thing last year. So it's really kind of a bummer we couldn't get together. In fact, Ladrina was on that team. So anyway, I was by myself. Uh, and as I was sitting there by myself, getting ready to play alone, Corey walked up because I was right by the stage. So he came up and sat next to me. And we, we talked for a little bit, and he helped me with a couple answers. Uh, I, I came nowhere near winning, however. There was like 30 teams uh, entering this this time. But it was, it was a lot of fun. And then I uh, went off to Hacker Jeopardy, which is a r absolute riot. And I think I told you about this last year. <laughs> it's so hard to describe. It's like the, the game show Jeopardy, but with a lot more cursing, a lot of beer drinking, and all tech-related questions. And some of it's pop culture tech-related questions. But it works the same way. You pick categories. Each category has, you know, dollar amount for questions. They get harder as the dollar amounts go up. Uh, there are daily doubles, but they don't call them daily doubles. They call them DFIU doubles. And DFIU stands for, well, okay, trigger warning. Let, let me just play the sound clip for what DFIU stands for. The first thing you hear is the noise that is made when a DFIU double category comes up when it's revealed when someone picks a choice and then you will hear what the crowd chants and then you will understand what DFIU stands for. So that was Lynn Tile there talking to the team who picked the choice which when revealed was a DFIU double. And, and he will browbeat you into betting all your money, and so will the crowd, because everybody wants to see you double or nothing. 
So anyway, Gray Fox and I were there uh, along with a friend of his, you know, drinking off some of the remainder of the alcohol I had brought, having a great time. So after Hacker Jeopardy, we went to, you guessed it, another party. Uh, this was VetCon. Uh, and at this point, I was honestly, I was getting pretty tired. I'd spent eight days at Vegas <laughs> and, uh, you know, three straight nights of partying. And I had to get a, an early flight the next morning. So I was going to get ready to call it a night. And this is something new. As I was getting ready to leave VetCon, I, I see that there are these beefy guys coming down the big, long escalator into the conference area wearing an SRT badge, which I assume is for security response team. And in the background, I'm also hearing the goons, which is the loving name for the DEF CON staff members, telling people that they had to leave. Not, it wasn't a madhouse. It wasn't a who concert thing. It, it was very organized, very calm. But it was like, okay, it's time to go. And so I'm like, what's going on? And they evacuated us all. Uh, I've seen news reports that said it was a bomb threat. It wasn't really a bomb threat. They had found a suspicious cardboard box. Now, of course, at DEF CON, I would argue that probably every single box there would look suspicious. There's a lot of really weird looking things, probably things that look like they could be bombs at DEF CON. But I guess the problem here was that nobody knew whose box this was. It was unattended. It was unaccounted for. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago, Las Vegas had the mass shootings and they just do not screw around with this stuff anymore. So out of an abundance of caution, they investigated the box, turned out the box was fine. Uh, but it turns out that basically all the parties on Saturday night were cut short. But as far as I know, everything returned to normal for Sunday morning. There was closing ceremonies and things like that. I did not stick around for those this year. In the past, they have been very long and honestly kind of boring. Uh, they, were, they announced the winners of all the contests, like all the major contests. And they bring them up on stage and do things with them. It's, it's really cool. I mean, I fully appreciate the need to recognize the winners. But it takes a really long time. Uh, and honestly, the parts like that applied to everybody were very small. And I think this year they they broke that out. And I didn't find that out until after I booked my flights or I might have changed my mind. But uh, apparently now there's a separate thing for our, all, you know, big gathering for all the contest winners. And then the closing ceremonies are, uh, are a much tighter, more focused affair, which I would have liked to have stuck around for. So this year, I actually didn't get to see the opening or the closing ceremonies, which was really kind of weird. But there you have it. There was my DEF CON experience for uh, DEF CON 31. I will definitely be going back next year. If you have any feedback on the kind of things you might be interested in, in hearing from DEF CON, let me know and I will plan for that next year. Now, I was looking for, but did not see anybody wearing Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon swag. Of course, there were 24,000 people there. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, you're, as you're passing people in the hallway, it's kind of hard to see what everybody's wearing. I do know for a fact that Gray Fox was wearing his shirt at one point, though I did not get a chance to see him wear it. And of course, I was wearing my own swag, uh, and I was kind of hoping somebody might stop me. But I did; a couple of people actually did stop to you know, to say hey about. The, but there was something about my book in one case, and it was also about the amulet of entropy in another case. So anyway, firewalls don't stop dragons is not exactly a household name at DefCon yet. But you know, hey, give it time. All right, so there were some things actually announced last week. So let's actually do a little bit of news real quick, and then we'll we'll call it a day. First up, I've got an article here from uh, Security Week. And it's about a new Intel processor attack called Downfall. Uh, let me just read you briefly here. This was announced at Black Hat. The details of a new side channel attack targeting Intel processors were disclosed on Tuesday. And 
Obviously, this is last Tuesday. The attack, discovered by a researcher at Google named Downfall, leverages a vulnerability tracked as CVE-2022-40982. And you'll notice the 2022 in there. We'll come back to that. Similar to other CPU attack methods, Downfall can be exploited by a local attacker or a piece of malware to obtain sensitive information, such as passwords and encryption keys belonging to the targeted device's users. The transient execution attack also works against cloud environments, allowing an attacker to steal data from other users on the same cloud computer. And this is a quote from Daniel from Google, who is the researcher who found this. And Daniel says, quote, The vulnerability is caused by memory optimization features in Intel processors that unintentionally reveal internal hardware registers to software. This allows untrusted software to access data stored by other programs, which should not normally be accessible. I discovered that the gather instruction meant to speed up accessing scattered data in memory leaks the content of the internal vector register file during speculative execution. To exploit this vulnerability, I introduced gather data sampling and gather value injection techniques, unquote. So that's obviously very technical. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Daniel, who reported his findings to Intel one year ago, said the GDS method is, quote unquote, highly practical, and he has created a proof of concept exploit that can steal encryption keys from OpenSSL. Remote attacks conducted via a web browser are theoretically also possible, but additional research is needed to demonstrate such an attack. Now, it goes on. I'm not going to get into those details. But if you remember Spectre and Meltdown, these were things that were kind of similar side channel attacks on Intel processors. And I, I talked about this then, but basically these processors, in order to try to eke out as much performance as possible, have what they call speculative execution code in them. They try to figure out all possible ways this code could go. You know, there's a lot of choice points. There's a lot of control points in code where if this, then that. Or if not, do this. And so what it does actually to speed things up is instead of waiting until the last possible minute to calculate, you know, the choice as to whether I'm going to go left or go right, basically, it says, well, let's just assume you're going to go one of those two ways and I'm going to pre-calculate everything you need if you go left or if you go right. So when the time comes, I'm ready for either one. That's a very simplified version of this. But this researcher uh, is the next person in line to come up with yet another way to exploit that to look at data that should be private and is not. And this is not something you're probably going to need to worry about for yourself at home. More than likely, this is going to be a problem on these cloud servers because if most of us don't have multiple users simultaneously running uh, on our home computers, we're the only person using it, generally speaking, even if there are multiple accounts on that computer. But in a cloud-based account, you've got multiple users potentially running on a server at one time. And you're not supposed to be able to look at the memory uh, you know, from user one to user two, for example. But these techniques, if you can compromise the device uh, for one of these users, basically means you can start poking at data from other users that are currently on that machine, which is not a good thing. So I, I told you to note the CVE date on that. It was 2022, which was last year. So supposedly this has been responsibly disclosed to Intel. They have pushed out fixes for this. And yet another reason why you want to make sure you're keeping your computers up to date. Though, for most of you listening to this, it's probably not going to be an issue. This is really more for cloud providers like Amazon and folks like that who are running servers with multiple simultaneous users on them where this might be an issue. All right. So next up, this is an article uh, about some research done by Patrick Wardle, who's a friend of the show and who I'd love to get back. He did a presentation at DEF CON, but I wasn't able to see it. I had a conflict. But he's a Mac security researcher, and he has come up with uh, yet another 
Mac vulnerability, uh, which hopefully it, Apple will fix and all will be good. So let me just read this article from 9to5Mac, which also has a really nice overview of Mac's built-in anti-malware protections. Mac OS has a number of built-in tools to detect Mac malware, with Background Task Manager added to the defenses last year. However, a security researcher says that this can be trivially bypassed and that Apple failed to act on his recommendation to fix it. Patrick Wardle presented his findings at DEF CON Hacker Conference, making the unusual decision to do so without advising Apple ahead of time. Apple has a three-layer system for protecting Macs against malware. First, it seeks to prevent installation of malware. It does this by vetting apps in the Mac App Store and using Gatekeeper with notarization to ensure that all other apps are signed by a recognized developer. Second, if malware makes it through this layer, it uses Xprotect to recognize malware and block it from running. And this is a little quote from some article, I'm not sure where. It says, macOS includes built-in antivirus technology called Xprotect, for the signature-based detection and removal of malware. This system uses Yara signatures, which, by the way, Y-A-R-A is a weird acronym that either stands for Yara, another recursive acronym, or yet another ridiculous acronym, depending on who you believe. Anyway, the system uses Yara Signatures, a tool used to conduct signature-based detection of malware, which Apple updates regularly. Apple monitors for new malware infections and strains and updates signatures automatically, independent from system updates, to help defend a Mac from malware infections. Xprotect automatically detects and blocks the execution of known malware. Third, even if malware has run once, Apple seeks to prevent it from doing so in the future. The company frequently updates Xprotect to look for newly identified malware. Additionally, Apple last year introduced a background task manager, which looks for the most dangerous form of malware, apps that persist. Some malware executes once, for example, to steal personal data and then quits. But the most dangerous form of malware persists. And I'm not sure if I agree with that. But anyway, yes, it's different. This form of malware can monitor ongoing user activity, download new elements from an attacker's server, and more. Apple seeks to detect this by looking for the installation of new persistent tasks and notifying both users and third-party security tools running on the Mac. Since many legitimate apps create persistent tasks, you shouldn't worry if you install a new app from the Mac Store or a trusted developer and receive this alert. But if an alert comes out of nowhere, that's a sign that your Mac may have been compromised. Security researcher Patrick Wardle last year notified Apple of a number of faults he discovered with the way this works. He knows a thing or two about the challenges of implementing this type of protection as he's previously created his own tool to do the same job. Yeah, I think it's either knock knock or block block, which I've used. But he told Wired that Apple failed to address the more fundamental issues he discussed with the company. And this is apparently this is a quote from that article. When Background Task Manager first debuted, Wardle discovered some more basic issues with the tool that caused persistent event notifications to fail. He reported them to Apple and the company fixed the error. But the company didn't identify deeper issues with the tool. And this is a quote from Patrick, quote, we went back and forth, and eventually they fixed that issue, but it was like putting some tape on an airplane as it's crashing. They didn't realize that the feature needed a lot of work, unquote. Normally, Wardle would only share details of exploits after Apple has fixed them. In this case, however, he says that the Cupertino company seems to have no interest in doing so, and has thus chosen to share at the DEF CON hacker conference the bypasses he discovered. One of them requires root access to the target Mac, but two others don't. And this is another quote. Wardle also found two paths that don't require root access to disable the persistent notifications bas background task manager is supposed to send to the user into security monitoring products. One of these exploits takes advantage of a bug in how the alerting system communicates with the core of a computer's operating system known as the kernel. 
The other capitalizes on a capability that allows users, even those without deep system privileges, to put processes to sleep. Wordle found that this capability can be manipulated to disrupt persistence notifications before they can get to the user. He chose this course of action, he says, because Background Task Manager currently offers a false sense of security to users and security companies alike who may think this aspect of protecting against Mac malware is already in place. So I actually remember reading some of Patrick's uh, posts about this uh, over the last year. So it's interesting that basically Apple's apparently telling him that they don't think this is a bug or maybe that they're just not going to fix it. And they, it does sound a little esoteric as far as how these things work. Um, I'd have to dig into this more to find out. But, you know, hey, if I get Patrick to come back on the show, maybe we can have him explain it to us. One more thing I want to be sure to mention before I get to this last short news story, uh, and that is that Patrick is from Hawaii. Uh, in particular, I know he lives on Maui. And uh, obviously, Maui has been ravaged with god-awful wildfires. Uh, many people have died. It's just a horrible situation. And I know uh, that Patrick is collecting money uh, donations uh, for Wildfire Relief Fund. And so I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, I have already donated myself. I encourage you to do the same if you have a little extra cash. Uh, it's obviously a horrific situation, and we wish them all the best. Okay, one more story. Uh, there was a uh, an announcement of an AI cyber challenge uh, that came uh, out of the White House. Yet another one of their many recent cybersecurity announcements, which is all fantastic. And I'm not even going to read this article. There's a link in the show notes if you want. But uh, I went to the announcement. I think they also announced it at Black Hat as well on the same day. But they're calling it the AI cyber challenge. And the long and short of it is that they're basically challenging either companies or individual developers or whoever to basically try to use AI as a tool for good and try to use it to fix and identify software vulnerabilities. This is through DARPA, the uh, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, who, as you may recall, basically started the internet back in the day. But it's a competition that will include collaboration with a lot of big companies like Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI. They're going to give away monetary prizes to see if people can come up with ways for AI to make us all safer. So I think that's a great thing. All right, so there you have it, guys. There is your Hacker Summer Camp show for the year. Uh, I'll probably keep doing these every year. I'm open to feedback, of course, but I think it's really interesting to let you guys know what's going on in the hacker community and that all hackers aren't bad. Hacking is not a crime. And hacker culture, I think, is just fascinating. And I want to try to make sure that everybody understands what it really means and what it's really about. And maybe, just maybe, find a few of you out there with some latent hacker proclivities and maybe spark some interest on your part to, you know, kind of look into these things. I highly recommend if you have the opportunity and any reason to do so that you come out to at least go to DEF CON next year. Check it out. It is very interesting. And hey, if you're out there, uh, maybe we can meet up. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for patiently listening to my stories about Hacker Summer Camp. We'll return next week with an interview as normal. We'll be talking to Michael Littman about artificial intelligence. That's something I've been wanting to bring you guys for a long time now. After that, we've got an interview with Tom Kemp on Data Brokers. And by the way, I know we haven't talked to him yet, but before we talk to him, he's going to be doing a live event on LinkedIn. If you are interested, there's a link in the show notes. That's a panel discussion, it looks like, I think, on the state of U.S. privacy and AI regulation. So if that is something that interests you, there's a link in the show notes for that. Also, as you now know, we will be talking with Nichols about uh, phishing, and that will all be coming up soon. The Dragon Challenge Coin promotion is going on for just a couple more weeks. 
If you want to become a patron, there's a lot of great benefits for doing that. And one of which right now is the pretty rare opportunity, actually, to get a hold of one of these super cool Dragon Challenge coins. I actually gave away a few of them at DEF CON. I gave one to both Misha and Luke. I certainly feel like they deserve that. I also gave one to Josh Corman, who absolutely deserves one. And if you want to help me to help others, uh, that will qualify you during special promotions like this to receive a coin as well. There are some caveats and restrictions to this, but if you go to fdsd.me slash promo 823, as in August of 2023, you will get all the information you need. And again, only a couple of weeks left. So check that out. And if you're interested, now is the time. All right, everybody, take care out there. Stay safe. And until next time, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>